So, Rachel, I read the first issue of X-Men 92. And it was so awesome, right? Well, yeah, yeah, but I'm still kind of confused by how Battleworld works. My impression is that it's a conglomeration of worlds pulled from across the multiverse by God King Doom and then divided into individual baronies, but I'm still hazy on the specific mechanics of it. Well, and they seem to deviate pretty far from the sources. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't remember Robert Kelly riding around in a flying chariot pulled by war wolves in 1992. Don't look at me. I mean, I was still a good eight years from being more than peripherally aware of X-Men at all. Chris, Chad, you guys want to field this one? Sure thing. Battleworld is the Marvel Universe remade from the pieces and parts of everything and everyone and every time that's ever existed. And it's all happening under the omnipotent eye of Doctor Doom. And like any good editor, Dr. Doom retconned the fabric of reality so that it's all it's ever been. And thus, there are werewolves. But the thing is, the werewolves are from roughly the same era. I mean, they were definitely around in the Marvel Universe in 1992, not so much the villain you reveal at the end. Yeah, yeah, but you can forget about the old 1992. This is 1992 on Battleworld. And besides, we had to use somebody new. The X-Men had defeated all the other guys. What happened? The Westchester Wars happened. That's five straight years of the X-Men facing off against just about every villain ever. And it was brutal, but eventually they won. And now they're the hottest thing in Westchester. They're bigger than the Beatles. I mean, if the Beatles existed on Battleworld. Oh, and Magneto died. Did we mention that? Man, for a town that's coming out of five years of all-out war, Westchester is in shockingly good shape. Is that one of the benefits of living in a Doom autocracy? No, that's because all the major battles in the Westchester Wars took place in one part of town. Well, that makes sense. You know, keeping things away from civilian areas, avoiding collateral damage. What part of town? The mall. What? Hi, I'm Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 59th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So right now in current uh, continuity, Secret Wars is ramping up. This is a big summer event with lots and lots of titles all set in its kind of sub-reality. And one of them is X-Men 92, which just launched online here this week, right before this episode is going to come out. And speaking of X-Men 92, here with us today are writers Chris Sims and Chad Bowers. You'll recognize Chris's voice from uh, several previous episodes, I think uh, number three, where we talked about the various animated series, and later on when he came in to give us a crash course on the amazing, amazing Team America. Chad, I think it's your first time on the show. Do you guys want to tell us a little bit about yourselves? Yeah, sure. I'm Chad Bowers, and obviously, you know, you guys know Chris, and uh, Chris and I have been writing comics together since about, what, 2007, Chris? Since late October of 2007. Our our writing partner anniversary is in October. (laughs) Do you celebrate it? Oh, we will this year. We'll celebrate it with X-Men, 92. No, but I mean, we've been writing together for a while, both big fans of the X-Men, both big fans of uh, all things X-Men, as I guess you'll find out a little bit later. Yeah, and I mean, I've been on the show before talking specifically about how much I loved the X-Men when I was 10 years old in 1992, (laughs) and I was getting reprints of Claremont and Byrne stuff from book fairs and reading about Arcade and Doctor Doom, and uh, just kind of loving the X-Men of that era, largely because they were so weird, (laughs) and I felt like I would never be able to understand them. (laughs) That's the entire reason our podcast exists right there, to attempt to help people resolve that issue. So you guys seem like a really natural fit for this series because there's a madcap ridiculousness to it that very, very much translates from the creator-owned work you've done series like Awesome Hospital, Subatomic Party Girls, Downset Fight. To what extent did Marvel come to you guys and say, okay, so we're doing this X-Men 92 series. Clearly, you were the guys for this. Did you come to them with it? Well, actually, what had happened, I was in the process of writing the episode guide that I did for the 1992 X-Men animated series. And so I was kind of knee deep in 
obsessing over early 90s X-Men stuff. And Downset Fight had just come out. That came out in March of last year. February or March of last year, Chad? Yeah, last February. And so, uh, obviously, when your first big graphic novel comes out, you send it around to a couple editors. And there were a couple of people that Chad and I were both on kind of friendly terms with that obviously we'd never worked with before. And Chad was actually the one who kind of got in touch with Jordan D. White, who's the editor on X-Men 92, and asked him if... uh, if there was anything that, uh, that he thought we could do for Marvel. Yeah. And not long after that, Jordan kind of got back to me and said, you know, there's this thing I, I had not there's really. This thing we can't tell you about. <laughs> yeah. And, and so he set up a meeting, I think with Chris at um, San Diego last year, basically they talked a little bit about it. And then Chris called me very excitedly afterwards. And uh, that's kind of it. Man, yeah, I know when they were revealing the teasers for all the Secret Wars titles, I'm like, oh, hey, that looks cool. That looks cool. Wait a minute. Seriously? Because, I mean, you know, the, the X-Men 92 poster, the teaser they released, definitely evokes a certain very specific time in the world of X-Men. That, oh, yeah, um, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, and I certainly grew up with that as well. I mean, you know, on Saturdays in the early 90s, my friends and I would get together and just, like, excitedly wait for the one cartoon we really cared about. <laughs> and then we'd be like, wait, who the hell is this morph guy? Whatever, we don't care. It's great. So the I, first issue of this came out digitally last week. It's going to be out in print in June. How exactly is that working? What we've read is the Infinite Comics version, which it's sort of hard to imagine translating to print. The interesting thing about it is that it is one of the Marvel Infinite books, which are the books that are kind of designed to take advantage of what you can do digitally. You know, the scene transition stuff, the overlays, the the captions that change. If, if you're reading uh, like the guided view native comics on Comixology, you're familiar with how that works. But it's coming out bi-weekly. So number two will be out in two weeks. And then the print versions are actually collecting uh, two of the digital versions at a time. When you lay them out on a page, they work out to about 30 or 40 pages <laughs> for two issues. So that's how they're coming together. Now we've read the print versions and I think they read perfectly fine. I'm actually looking at the, the proof of the print version of number one right now, but uh, the digital versions do have a little bit extra in terms of how it's paced out and how Scott Cowlish has kind of staged out all the, uh, the overlays and captions and transitions. Yeah, I mean, little things like uh, at the very, very beginning when it's introducing the team and doing the countdown to Laser Geddon. I enjoyed that, you know, eight, seven, six. <laughs> you know, we're talking a little bit about the publishing context. I want to go back to Secret Wars a little bit in the context of Battle World and what's coming out of that. Because if nothing else, I read all 70 Hickman Avengers comics leading up to it this week. And to clarify, this is specifically the 2015 Secret Wars we're talking about. We've already covered stuff with the Beyonder from the 80s far more than we ever wanted to. So this is just the new stuff here. Yeah, yeah that's I'll... Rachel's favorite comic. Right? <laughs> God, damn it. Secret Wars 2. Everyone loves Hate the Beyonder. so much. No, there are Beyonders back. And there's actually Douglas Wolk, who's a, a comics journalist and writer, is a friend of mine, let me the entire Hickman run, all, all of those titles, in continuity order, because he's amazing. But when we were talking about it earlier, the two of us actually found a fairly major continuity error with regards to the Beyonders, which I'm really, really proud of having been part of. Now I'm really of. curious. Right. So it's it's a major point in the new stuff and then lead up to the new Secret Wars that the Beyonders travel in a linear manner through time. They can't travel backwards and forwards in time. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I know that's not true because we just covered the X-Men story where the Beyonder pulls Rachel Summers into the Days of Future Past timeline. Right. She sort of pulls, uh, what is it, Earth 818 and 616, kind of, she semi-merges them and overlaps them. Uh, well, he does. He specifically jumps into that future, grabs some stuff, jumps back. You can explain this away as him having been a renegade Beyonder. But the point is that one of the major, major, you know, plot details about the Beyonders in the lead into the new Secret Wars definitely contradicts something established solidly in X-Men during Secret Wars 2. 
comics having well, continuity well, problems. Well, that's a young that's a young Beyonder, right? Isn't that like isn't that what he's called now? Like the kid Beyonder? He, or, uh... he is a young Beyonder, but they do specify that that is innate to the Beyonders. Now I just oh, want to call him. I thought it might be plural. something they lose. Like here is here is my question, Rachel. Does he actually go into the future of Days of Future Past, or does he merely go into the alternate universe, moving laterally through time, where Days of Future Past was happening at that moment? Both, because Days of Future Past, the one specifically that Rachel Summers came from, which it's very clearly, it's stated word of God in the captions that he's doing, <laughs> is both in a separate timeline and in the future. Oh, wow. He is, he is, he is moving, he is moving <laughs> both both laterally and linearly through the time stream and the why multiverse. Did, why did we have to show up for the cold open when you had that in your back pocket? No, no <laughs> we, had to, we had to have some way to introduce you guys. Come on. It's tradition. It, it See, was not deliberate to talk about the Beyonder. That was not the plan. He just sort of happened and then, you know, took over comics for nine months. That's yeah. why I'm glad that, that oh, we're God. writing on Battle World where all that stuff is just happening like three miles away. Right. Exactly. You, you just can't go there. <laughs> right. So Battle World, from what we've seen so far, is a conglomerated world. It's run by God King Doom. And again, you can see the, the build up to that in Hickman's Avengers run, which is really cool and really interesting. You weren't here when I was finishing it, but there was definitely some yelling going on in our apartment, me and the cat <laughs> having feelings. Very nice. And it's got all of these little baronies that are under different rule and are very carefully kept separate from one another for the most part. It seems like that's a fairly strong tenet that they're very, very isolated. So X-Men 92 is one of those worlds. And I'm curious about that because most of them seem to be tied to a specific event or a specific timeline split point or, you know, a, a specific storyline. So with the other X worlds we've got are things like Extinction Agenda, Inferno, Days of Future Past and House of M. X-Men 92, on the other hand, is tied to an era. And that's a really, really broad segment to be drawing from. Yeah, it's it's weird. <laughs> it's a little different from the other books. But I mean, you've got other stuff that's kind of like you know, like Modoc Assassin, that's not tied to any like one version of Modoc. You know what I mean? That's kind of like the broad Modoc stuff. Weird World. I mean, they're all they're all kind of all over the place. I would say that there's certainly more that are that are based on events than not. But at the same time, it, it's it's a pretty broad. Uh, there's some variety out there. That's actually one of the kind of biggest challenges for us going into it was we had to sort of sit down and figure out what does X Men '92 mean? Like, yeah, what, exactly. What exactly are we drawing from? And that's one of the reasons that we kind of came up with the Westchester Wars because we wanted these to be X-Men where they were recognizable. Like, you know, if you read X-Men comics in the nineties, they've done that stuff. <laughs> they've done, mm -hmm. they've done everything before the start of generation X, I guess. They were kind of rehashing the same old stuff over and over, like the Magneto, the Juggernaut stuff, Sinister, stuff like that. So well, a lot of that, I mean, not Sinister, but Magneto and the Juggernaut, they've been rehashing in roughly the same form since the Silver Age. You see, That's true, yeah. You know, Juggernaut mm -hmm. stories that have exactly the same shape where the Juggernaut's trying to get in and the X-Men have layers of defenses in the middle of which Professor X is telling them the origin story of the Juggernaut. Like, that's like four different issues in four different eras. Kane, <laughs> why are you doing this? I mean, Me help you. <laughs> get out of my head, Charles! <laughs> <laughs> there were actually two things that really made it click into place for us, trying to figure out where we wanted to go with this. One of them was a panel in Executioner's Song <laughs> that has Cable covered in guns, drawn by Greg Capullo. Uh, and he is saying that he's about to go fight Strife, and he says he's going to face him man-to-man, -man, and quite literally face-to-face. -face. <laughs> face? Do you get it? Thank you, 1992. <laughs> yeah, so that, you know... It's, it's beautiful. Executioner's Song is my holy grail of, of episode oh, yeah, fodder. Great. Like, I cannot wait till we get to that. If you read the dialogue, like, the dialogue in X-Men 92 is completely different than the dialogue in Party Girls or in Downset Fight because we're trying to capture that dialogue. Like, oh, we're trying so hard. <laughs> That's why there's so much of it. I read uh, 
I read Planet Hulk yesterday and I read, um, I guess, uh, A-Force and a couple of other of the titles. And it's funny because ours is literally going to be like, I think, like, they, they quaked to like 15 pages maybe mm-hmm. uh, on the digital app. But I think they probably feel like 45 pages on the digital app just because of how much we've written. <laughs> and the other thing was, and this is a realization that Chad had, like, you guys obviously know Chris Claremont is on the book for 15 years, right? Like he is mm-hmm. on the book and does every X-Men title essentially up through, you know, the start of new mutants to, to X factor. And, you know, those get handed off to different creative teams eventually, but he, you know, he stays on those X-Men books for a long time. Uh, Chris, I'm gonna uh, let you finish, but he actually did not write X factor. That was the first book that he was not assigned. It's true. Okay. It's listen, true. I'm two weeks behind on the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. It'll be, it'll be there waiting You're for about you. 20 years behind on that book. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is true. Uh, but then, you know, the first issue of X-Men that is not written by Chris Claremont, that does not have Chris Claremont's name on it, is January of 1992. It's X-Men number four. It's the start of the Omega Red stuff. And when Chad figured that out, it's like, oh, so this is the X-Men that, you know, are being written by people who grew up reading Claremont, who mm-hmm. think Chris Claremont is how you write comics. I think sequentially, like, you know, because Mutant Genesis, right, the Magneto story that kicks off Agitables X-Men is, you know, boom, 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 three parts, right? And then what's the first Wolf's Portacio, John Byrne, uncanny issue? Is it like two? I forget what the, it's 273, maybe? I don't remember what the issue is. You know, you know, you guys are the one I'm talking about there, right? Mm-hmm. It's the first, mm-hmm. yeah. the first gold team issue. Yeah. Um, Kenny's gold team. You know, that happens. They leave to go to that hellfire club party in agitless X-Men number four. And then that's really where the modern era starts. So you've got John Byrne scripting over Jim Lee with the blue team going off to do one thing. And then you've got the gold team jumping off into their own book. And it's, it's really interesting how much that book really splits from being like a singular voice to those two different voices of Fabian ECAs and Scott Lobdell at that point uh, later on. And also like we talked about how the X-Men in our version, they're famous. People know who they are. Like Wolverine gets recognized at the mall. They're on lunchboxes. They're on t-shirts. That kind of thing. Because in 1992, the X-Men were on lunchboxes and on Uh (laughs) t-shirts. They were on, they were on Saturday morning cartoons. There was an arcade game. There was a comic that, that was selling millions and millions of copies every month. Those are kind of the things that we latched onto to sort of figure out how our X-Men worked. I I think it's the feeling of that era that we're trying to capture more than any specific thing. And hopefully we've done it. I mean, you guys read the first issue and said you liked it. Oh, yeah. No, I think you guys guys have it. Definitely. And actually, I wanted to take a step back for a second, talk about, I guess, in a broader sense, what the X line was looking like in 92. Huge. It was looking huge. Because you guys were you were saying that, you know, yeah, there were a lot of changes going on. And that's true. Like we haven't gotten to that coverage in the podcast. So for listeners who are not familiar, this was right after the Muir Island saga, which was a storyline where basically the original five from X Factor had rejoined the X-Men. And this was also very shortly, I think in late 1991, um, X-Men number one had broken and set the record, which it still holds, I think, for most copies of a single issue sold. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. What was going on at the same time was that artists were getting a much, much bigger voice especially in the X-Line. Like you saw Rob Liefeld on X-Force, who by the end of New Mutants had taken over a lot of the writing duties. You saw Jim Lee doing a lot of the writing in Adjectiveless X-Men. 
I'm going to briefly go down the books at the time. So we had, of course, Adjectiveless X-Men, which had uh, just launched. That was the blue team, who are a lot like the team from the animated series. There was some Omega Red stuff going on. Maverick was showing up. They had their uh, crossover with Ghost Rider, which I love the title of, Brood Trouble in the Big Easy. Yeah, Maverick. (laughs) That character who seemed totally awesome, but nobody can really remember just what his deal was or make sense of it if they can. Well, Brood Trouble in the Big Easy means it's not only Ghost Rider, but also the Thieves Guild and the Assassin's Guild, yes. The Thieves and the Assassin's Guild. Are we going to be seeing these in 92 because god i hope so i mean i don't want to spoil anything for you but uh number three starts with a flashback that has two flashbacks inside (laughs) nice nice (laughs) i was gonna say you're getting a little bit batman odyssey there the one with the caveman (laughs) yeah i'm really proud of this but you get to see the note that gambit leaves on belladonna's bedside table on their wedding night when he just dips Oh, Uh, nice. Which, because it's happening in Secret Wars, is out of the Cajun area of Westchester. (laughs) (laughs) The Cajun district. But is it written in his phonetic accent? You (laughs) might as well spoil it now. Yeah. Uh, The note that he leaves with Belladonna just says, it not you, it Gambit. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Like While we're on the subject of the Cajun area of Westchester, the weird thing is that when we first were talking about what we wanted to do with this book, like we had no idea what exactly the restrictions were going to be on it because they hadn't told us anything. They were just like, yeah, we're kind of, you know, we want to do a nineties X-Men style comic and we think you guys would be good at that. So, you know, our initial thought was like, we should do everything. Like we wanted to go to Japan. We wanted to go to Genosha. We wanted to go to, to, you know, the moon and Canada and, uh, and Madripoor. And then we just heard, you can't do that because those places (laughs) don't exist. (laughs) And so we were like, okay, so we've been kind of joking with Jordan about how everything has happened at the mall. So when the X-Men went through the Siege Perilous, they ended up at the Outback Steakhouse. And <laughs> I guess Gambit is, Gambit is just from down by the Popeye's Chicken. <laughs> I love this plan. Mall World. I love it. So I guess continuing on with 1992, there's also Uncanny X-Men, and that's the gold team, right? I mean, this is actually the first year you started buying X-Men, isn't it? Uh, Yeah, actually, the first time I started buying X-Men comics for myself, it was indeed 92. It was, I think, probably somewhere around the summer. And in my memory, these comics didn't make sense because I was a kid and I didn't have context. But going over them again, they kind of just didn't make sense. And I think Uncanny X-Men is where you see a lot of that the most because they were changing creative teams literally every issue. Either the writer or the artist was different. Like I, I made a list and it's, I think it's like five or six different writers and seven or eight different artists over the course of one year. It's the one that I would think is probably the hardest or the least accessible. You know, like Will Spertacey is a great artist, but he's an artist that I don't necessarily know if I wanted to be my first artist. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. My first X-Men artist. Because there's a lot going on in those issues on top of his art. Yeah, there's a lot going on in Uncanny. I think Uncanny has the unfortunate role of being kind of like the stepchild of the other book, even though it's the original book. See, my 92 is Excalibur, which is really self-contained. This is the Alan Davis run. Um, They're running around doing extra dimensional stuff. Yeah, and I noticed you guys have Warwolves, which I really appreciated um, uh, just as, as a fan of that. But hearing you talk about this is bizarre because for me, again, this era is so self-contained because I pretty much stopped with New Mutants after X4 started. I'm going to be going back and rereading all of this, obviously, as we go through them. But most of this stuff I skimmed or I read, you know, very fast in the course of marathoning it. So the series that I was following at this point was sort of the one that was a little bit separate from continuity. And actually, speaking of X-Force, okay, so for me, like, you know, yeah, there's the Jim Lee uh, X-Men, but for me, the 90s was kind of the era of X-Force, a book that I was very angry at when it came out because it took my New Mutants and changed it, and I was not okay with that. But, like, in retrospect, I've actually become a much bigger fan just because it knows exactly what it is, and it it, it doesn't apologize for that at all. 
I was actually refreshing my memory on uh, marvel.wikia.com. And texting me these all week. Yes. And uh, I found some quotes from issue descriptions that I think sum it up pretty well. Boom Boom's yelling causes Cable to have a flashback. (laughs) And he vents his anger on Sauron by blowing him away. And rather than fight X-Force, he gets scared and jumps off a cliff. Like, those three sentences right there, I feel like you don't need to read X-Force anymore. I mean, that actually also sounds like a story summary. (laughs) Spoilers, yeah. But X-Force, it seemed like it was crossing over with everything it could at all times in this era, and I was excited to see that uh, in the solicits for your third issue, there was like a description of kind of some of the edgy characters like Deadpool and stuff, so I'm eager to see that part of the 90s represented as well. We've been working on that part of the story right now. Um, I guess that's going to end up being like uh, in the print edition will be like number three. The Deadpool of, of early X-Force late New Mutants where he debuted is very, very different than the Deadpool we know today. And so it's weird trying to get his voice because it's so like he's really he, he's a very different character. He's a little more serious. But at the same time, his humor is like less like slapsticky and and much more pointed <laughs> and mm-hmm. a little more like sadistic so that's been really weird so i'm kind of wondering people who've never read those issues are going to think we're just getting deadpool all wrong right yeah i mean i was remembering that as i was going over old stuff like he was sort of spider-man if spider-man were a sadistic sociopath personality yeah exactly i like him much better these days personally but that 90s one has definitely had its own bizarre liefeldian appeal yeah no doubt bizarre liefeldian appeal is kind of what we're shooting for yeah so what else in 92 let's see there's x factor that's being written by peter david at this point right yeah, and that's the new team, not the original five, but like Havoc and Wolfsbane and stuff. Right, so this is government X-Factor. This is X-Factor sold out. Working for the man. That was kind of a weird era, because everyone remembers Peter David's X-Factor really fondly, but when it first started, I kind of feel like he didn't have much of a voice quite yet. I mostly vividly remember the Doc Sampson issues. The therapy one? <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Of the Explosion books, I think Peter David's X-Factor is probably my favorite of those books, especially the first issue where they sort of blackmail Havoc into leading the team. There is that one. That's a good point. That one was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, at the time, Wolverine, of course, had his own series as well, which was like, I don't know, Japan stuff and Weapon X flashback stuff and robots from the future and all sorts of glorious Oh, nonsense. man, that was the Albert and LCD era, right? It totally was. I never read those comics, but I vividly remember being, you know, 11, 12 years old and going to the Sumter County flea market <laughs> and just buying like five or six packs of Wolverine trading cards and trying to piece together. Because, again, like... X-Men was really intimidating for me as a kid because so there was so much of it and I had no idea what was going on. Like in 1992, I found out there was a whole other thing. <laughs> like the, there's this whole other company making comics, guys. Did you know about this? Who knew? And so imagine being 12 and just trying to piece together Albert and LCD and Madripoor and Patch and that John Buscema suit, right? Is it John Buscema that draws the with the, the fishnet mask? Oh, man, that thing, yeah. Like, imagine trying to piece that together from maybe 15 trading cards and then going to get the uh, Wolverine Super Nintendo game. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like there were a lot of people, like myself included at the time, that were in pretty much that situation. Like, I got that big long box from my father, but I wasn't really reading a lot of it at the time. Like, there was just so much of it. I had the Marvel Universe Series 3 and 4 trading cards and, like, whatever comics I could grab from the comic store when I got around to going there. And it was just this mystical world of nonsensical madness. Well, I feel like that was kind of half the fun of reading comics pre-internet. I remember Peter Wynn talking about this when he was on a while ago too that you read issues out of order and you kind of write your own story to go in between them you make up your own bridges and your own explanations because there's not a lot that makes sense and there is no marvel.wikia.com at that point Mm -hmm. 
it's like X-Men Dream Logic trying to figure it all it's, it's out. It's kind of like Dream Logic, even if you've got all of it, actually, <laughs> at, at least at this point. Because, I mean, we're talking about a year where the main crossover event was, again, Executioner's Song. Sorry, Executioner's Song. Yeah, I, I always wondered how you were supposed to pronounce that. You're not. <laughs> You're really, really not. And, I mean, my main memory of that, aside from the amazing, ridiculous, like, Summer's Family, I, not even Tree at this point, Strawberry Patch, maybe, is just Wolverine being drawn taller and taller and taller. Eventually, he's just towering over everyone else. You just see, like, his foot in panel and, like, a, the hint of a claw coming down from the top. No, but there is a page where he and Cable and Bishop are all in, like, the same panel, and it's unbelievable. Like, there are more than three men's worth of muscles happening there. Like, by a significant margin, there's enough overlap to maybe create a fourth man from all of the leftover. That, that's some Team America shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> If oh, only man. they'd been around in the early 90s, what a different Marvel Universe it would have been. But one thing that there definitely was that we haven't really touched on much yet was X-Men the Animated Series. Oh, and there were some tie-in comics from that. There was X-Men Adventures and the Pizza Hut comics. Yes, the Pizza Hut comics, the glorious Pizza Hut giveaway comics. All I want to do is talk about those Pizza Hut comics, guys. Forget X-Men 92. The Pizza Hut comics are where it's at today. We can do I mean, that. if you want the Rosetta Stone for what X-Men 92 is, go find those Pizza Hut comics. Go find the one where Cyclops and Bishop go into cyberspace and fight Arcade uh, and his icons. <laughs> and they have to physically locate the files inside the computer. That is how operating systems should work, I firmly believe, exactly like that. Dean Pelton of Greentale Community College agrees with you wholeheartedly. That's yes, true, he does. Yes, I watched that episode the other day of Yahoo Community, and I was like, this is exactly what that issue of the Pizza Hut X-Men, which I, I like calling them the Pizza Hut X-Men. Too. Right. It's like, you know, Earth 6-1 Pizza Hut 5 or something. <laughs> so I, w- I want to talk about Earth this. PH93. <laughs> specifically, because when we were talking on Skype before we started recording, we mentioned these, Chris, and you just spontaneously recited a huge block of dialogue from one of them. Oh, yeah. Now, if. If people listened way back to that episode where uh, you and I talked about the X-Men animated series. I think the, that was actually episode three. So I know the title was Cartoons, Lies, and Videotape. And, and I think, you know, you and Chad are both similar in that you are friends of mine whose favorite X-Men is Cyclops. And you are friends of mine who did not first encounter Cyclops in the X-Men animated series, X-Men number one, and these Pizza Hut comics. Uh, and there is nothing that is more Cyclops to me. Then uh, the splash page in this Pizza Hut comic, the plot is that they need to go inside Cerebro. They're hooked up into these gyroscopes, getting ready to enter the Matrix. And Jubilee goes, wow, it's so cool. And Cyclops' response is, there's nothing remotely cool about what Gene Bishop and I are preparing to do, Jubilee. Entering cyberspace, the electronic subdimension that exists within the electromagnetic field of all computers <laughs> is dangerous under the best of circumstances. <laughs> Scott <But yeah>. Summers. <laughs> there's nothing cool about going into the Matrix, guys. <laughs> oh, man. As much as I'm a Cyclops fan as well, like, yeah, that totally fits, especially that Scott Summers. That's perfect. There is a yeah. coloring book page from this era that I have saved as an image file um, that I have been planning to pull out at some point. I, I have all of these images of Cyclops being a jerk that I just saved to be a dick to Chris with, <laughs> but they re- they require very specific context. So I've got this huge stockpile now. But yeah, no, it's, it's a connect the dots picture of, of Cyclops and he's yelling, I'm Cyclops and whatever you're doing, I'm here to stop it right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I don't know if that's the exact quote. Obviously, I haven't put quite as much time into, into memorizing this one, but it's something along those lines. And I mean, my oh, favorite, I my, my two favorite things about that are that it's not even just a man who shoots lasers out of his eyes going into the, they're not going fucking into the lasers. 
I'm sorry, concussive force beams. Thank you. It's not just that. He's also going with a super-powered cowboy from the future. <laughs> uh, and the other thing is, we, the reader, are obviously supposed to think that the events of this comic book are cool, right? <laughs> yeah. To be and fair, so I going, thought they were no, very this cool. Is not cool. <laughs> well, and that's why Jubilee oh, is the functional reader Stanton in this, as it seems she continues to be in your series. And now I know this officially can't be the X-Men animated series because that's with Fox. But I also know that you grew up watching it. How much of that sensibility has bled into this? And how much have you ended up finding yourselves doing to reconcile that with the very weird climate of the comics at the time? Uh, well, the interesting thing about it is, you know, Chad and I had a lot of conversations because obviously I was just finishing up the episode guide when we officially got the job. Uh, I had, I just finished getting through the entire five seasons. And when that happened, like Chad went out and got the DVDs and he watched it all. Uh, just to kind of get in the mindset of what was going on with the X-Men at the time. I have a stack of Executioner song here. I read Mutant Genesis three times. Chad read all those comics. Like we've had so many conversations about Omega Red's mutant death factor. <laughs> but yeah, like we kind of went into it. And when it comes to the cartoon, this is something that I think you and I talked about, Rachel. Like the cartoon is really interesting because it's exactly the comics. They are taking the X-Men as they look and as they exist in 1992, 1993, you know, up to 1996 and just putting them on the screen. They do older stories. They do, you know, Claremont and Burn stories. They do Dark Phoenix. They do stuff like that. But also when that show starts, it is not an origin story for the X-Men. It's the only superhero cartoon that doesn't strip things down. It strips them up. <laughs> it puts more things in. Like in the first episode of that cartoon, the lineup of the X-Men has changed two times. Before we meet them. Right. You have more if you have uh, Beast disappearing and Gene having. Yeah. We know that there was a Silver Age X-Men. Like we see flashbacks like in, you know, season two, I think they start like in season two, they show flashbacks to the X-Men fighting the super adaptoid. You know, they, they show flashbacks to the Roy Thomas issues, mm -hmm. <laughs> which, which I don't know why they decided to do that. But, you know, that's a team where we find out a year in that Rogue stole Miss Marvel's powers and used to be a supervillain. And it's like, yeah, that's just stuff that happened. <laughs> it's just stuff that happened that we've never mentioned before because it wasn't important to talk about it before. And is, man, reading reading that uh, reading the comics at the time and going through all back issues while the series was coming out every Saturday, it just felt like there was just always more X Men because the cartoon would reference things I'd read in the comics. I would read a new comic that made a scene from the cartoon make more sense. That was one of the things I loved most about it. It was right in there. It was right in '90s X Men continuity. Well, and yeah, again, it seems to put yeah. a lot of faith in the reader and assume that the reader is capable of either making connections. Are working around them, which is something that I appreciated even watching it for the first time as an adult. Doing that, you kind of have to go into it with a grain of salt because it's really terrible on a lot of levels. It varies. It depends <laughs> it, it on the, does, the production It does team. vary. But even, you know, diving in as an adult who had read a huge amount of X-Men when I started, I was impressed with how much they just left to context. You know, assuming people would be like, oh, well, that must just be a thing that happened. Well, honestly, I think that's why people have such an affection for that show, because it's deep. Look, Batman the Animated Series is like my favorite thing of all time. It's not just my favorite cartoon. It's my favorite concept that exists. But if you loved Batman the Animated Series, and I had this experience as a kid, you know, as a 10-year-old, uh, if you loved Batman the Animated Series and you go to the comic shop or you go down to the drugstore, the comics don't look like Batman the Animated Series unless you're buying Batman Adventures, which is a great book. But like if you want to get one of the four monthly Batman titles that's coming out, they don't look like that. The characters are a little different. Things don't quite match up. With X-Men, you could watch that cartoon and go buy Gambit number one, and you would be right on board. You could buy the Michael Ringo Rogue miniseries, 
and be right on board. You could get, you know, issues of Uncanny or issues of X-Men. And more or less, they would look and act like they did on the show. And and Chad, you had like a really, uh, the, the Phalanx Covenant. You, you kind of realized something about it. Well, the, the Phalanx Covenant, the animated adaptation of the Phalanx Covenant, which is essentially not anything like the comics adaptation. No. Uh, because the comics adaptation came out like just a year before. They were clearly like making those shows and making those comics within just a few months of each other and just use the name. Like they had a broad idea of what it was about, but they're not really the same thing, which is very interesting. It'd be like if the Dark Phoenix saga happened and then a year later there was an animated adaptation of it, but they didn't have any of the source material. They just had like a couple of paragraphs to describe what it might be about. So kind of um, Game of Thrones syndrome without all of the rape. I was thinking Scott Pilgrim, actually, because <laughs> the Scott Pilgrim comic was finishing up yeah, as the movie was being finished. I like, I like your right. analogy better. My analogy doesn't involve any rape. It's it true. doesn't. And it's also, I think, a better adaptation in a lot of ways. <laughs> and so you mentioned the villain who shows up at the end. You know, our story is like, what if you just kind of heard about this villain? <laughs> like, what if you just sort of heard it and had to figure out what her deal was? Yeah, and you chose a hell of a villain. This is, we're not going to name them, but this villain has I mean, been a cold open on the series. Um, can we, though? Like, can, can we, we talk I about mean, it? Because it's, this it's, is, the book's out, You know, right? the, the, book's book's, out. the book will have been out when this episode airs. The digital comic will have been out for like four days. Look, Rachel, Chad and I have been waiting to do an interview where we can actually <laughs> talk. Because we, we wanted to preserve the surprise, even though she's on the cover to the, to the second print version. Like we have been waiting to talk about her. Well, and the thing is, is like, and we maybe can edit this out if it, if we need to, but mm-hmm. the, if you've read the solicitation for the second issue, then you know that the shadow queen is a player in the book. And then if you've read the first issue by now, you know that Cassandra Nova is our big villain reveal at the end of number one. So, you know, attentive readers can probably figure out like that there may be a connection there between those two. And there's a really, really good reason why, like we're very, both very happy with the way this is turning out and the way that works. And, and that was something that we wanted to do as well was if you read the X-Men in the nineties, you, you saw him fight Magneto. You saw him fight the Juggernaut. You saw him fight the Brotherhood. You saw him fight the Phalanx. You saw him fight the Friends of Humanity and Trevor Fitzroy. Yeah. And yeah. Fabian they, Cortez. Like you saw all that. Like that's why the Westchester Awards are everything that happened. You did not see the nineties X-Men fight Cassandra Nova. And she's like from almost exactly 10 years later in the comics, as I recall, from the era that you guys are covering it. Because she was from around 2002 in Morrison's run. She's yeah. from 2001. 2001, she's, okay. She's the first non-90s thing that the X-Men encounter really post that era. Because they seem like they want to keep reinventing the X-Men throughout the 90s, right? There's multiple attempts. Like Claremont comes back and there's a couple of little er- misstarts here and there. And they really don't seem like they have a lot of focus. They seem like they're there's still trying to... Yeah, yeah. When when Warren Ellis plots those books. That's right. Yeah. There's all these attempts to make the X-Men what they were in like 1991. uh, And yet they just don't seem to be able to get it. And it's really not until Morrison comes on and and launches new X-Men that there's a new mission statement for the X-Men. And so when Chris and I came up with the idea for for 92 or when we were working on 92, we thought what would be really interesting is not necessarily seeing them fight those greatest hit villains that we've always seen them fight before. Because, you know, we know they're going to win against those guys. But to see them fight something that was so decidedly not 90s. And I think that's why we came up with the idea of what would the uh, what would the either the animated series or what would the the comics of that time look like if they were were getting uh, transmissions from the future about what new X-Men uh, is for extinction would be like. Until we found out that, uh, you know, Chris Burnham and Ramon Villalobos are doing uh, ease for extinction, which looks great. 
our original title, a subtitle for the story arc was X is for extinction. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> because like, that's like, that's what they would have called it. I, I kind now of wish that that had actually, I kind of wish that that had actually, no X is for extreme, but I kind of, I kind of wish that that had, act, Oh, which actually brings me to, to a, a listener question. I want to throw in just right here. Speaking of, of nineties definitive characters, will we be seeing Adam X, the extreme? Is he in the courtyard? He's, he's not in the courtyard. He was actually in our first draft and we pulled him out. Yeah. He oh. was going to be like, there was a, the a very original. This does not spoil anything because we've moved far away from this. The original thing was like we were going to open with like Adam X running and being like gunned down, like shot down in like trying to escape from essentially like the village from the prisoner, which is where, you know, this place where they would go put all the characters who were too extreme. Oh, man. If Adam X isn't safe, no one is safe. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, he was first on the list. Yeah. So he, I want to go back it. to Cassandra Nova for a second. Um, And you talked about the Phalanx Covenant and, you know, coming up with a cartoon episode based on a very, very slim sense of what the story was. And I'm wondering to what extent your Cassandra Nova is <laughs> a re, you know, is, is a reimagining of Morrison's Cassandra Nova specifically. And to what extent it's, it's just basically a Cassandra Nova built off her trading card info saying, you know, she's the evil psychic, maybe kind of twin. Yeah. You got it. Like that. Yeah. She's Cassandra Nova on the trading card. Add like self-hating mutant in there and you got it perfectly. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, she is, uh, I, I want to tell you what her origin is. Cause it's, like I, uh, I told my friend Kieran and he laughed and then his girlfriend asked him what he was laughing at. And he had to explain five different things to his girlfriend. <laughs> that means you're doing X-Men right. If right you there. want, you can tell us and we can bleep it out. Uh, all right. On the air. Uh, ready? <laughs> you <get laughs> yeah, finger on the button. <laughs> You basically just created a parallel story to Executioner's song. Yeah, exactly. That was when when Chad and I figured out that was going to be her deal. Um, you know, we had a question on on the CBR interview that was like, "Is this a spoof? Is this a parody?" And it's like, "No, it's not like a parody, but we are having a lot of fun, and we are definitely making ourselves laugh." Well, because it, it, it's hilarious because I think we're actually super accurate for that time period, <laughs> but I still think that many years removed from it, it's going to kind of look like parody. <laughs> I, I feel like you could just rewrite Executioner's song verbatim right now and have it read like parody because everything yeah, was so true. just absurdly over the top. Well, yeah, yeah. Like man that, to man that, and quite literally, literally face, face to face, face because <laughs> they it. have the same face. And I mean, well, yeah, this whole this whole era, I mean, it's it's a cross between stupidly awesome and awesomely stupid. And at the time, it was just awesome. It was extreme. But yeah, oh, yeah looking we didn't back, know any better. No, exactly. But I mean, and looking back, like, it's almost how I learned to stop worrying and love the bomb. It's how I learned to stop worrying and love X-Force because it's ridiculous and it's just way dumber than it should be. But there's a certain appeal to that. There's a certain appeal to everything being amped up to 11 and everyone having giant muscles and saying exactly what's on their minds using semi-poetic, unnecessarily wordy language. Like, I love that shit now. I'm going to talk about another podcast real quick. The Jim Rugg at Pisker podcast, the uh, uh, Tell Me Something I Don't Know podcast. 
they did an interview with Rob Liefeld. Have you guys listened to that episode? We have not. I have heard that basically every Liefeld podcast interview was amazing. We are hoping to get him eventually and add him they, to that pantheon, maybe in about 10 years when we finally get to X-Force. You know, I don't know where you guys fall on the Rob Liefeld scale, but I'm like way at the top of awesome. So, you know, there's a, there's a moment where you realize Rob Liefeld's talking about this stuff and he's probably what, like 18, 19 when Marvel comes to him and says, hey, which X book do you want? And he's like, well, what do you have? And they lay out what he can get and they offer him X Factor. And Rob kind of says he freezes up because he's like, man, those are the original five X-Men. That's a big deal. Like, I'm like 19. I'm not ready necessarily. And I'm paraphrasing here, obviously. I'm sorry. But he's like, what else could I do? Like, what's the lowest selling title? And they're like, well, it's probably the New Mutants. He's like, I want that one. Because if I succeed on that book, then I'll be able to be like, look, I saved this book. And he more than saved the book. He saved the franchise, I think, in a lot of ways. He talks about, like, this book needs new characters. So what are Marvel's most popular characters? Marvel are like, okay, well, our most popular characters are obviously like Wolverine and the Punisher. And Rob Liefeld's like, okay, Wolverine and the Punisher. So a guy who's got all these guns and another guy with claws for hands. So if I create a guy who's bigger than Wolverine and the Punisher, who's got more claws than Wolverine or has uses more knives and blades and has more extreme tendencies than Wolverine and has a bigger gun than the Punisher, then, then this book will have to succeed. And of course, he creates Cable. And that's the story behind Cable from Rob Liefeld. And in many ways, that's exactly the way a kid would think about you know, creating comics. Yeah, that's and that's that, Axe Cop. He has, yeah, exactly. He has more guns than the Punisher and at least seven knives. At least seven knives. <laughs> and it's like, you know what? That's exactly right. And that epitomizes to me that era of comics and like what we're doing. Right. The whole the whole more is more philosophy. Like less is yeah, more, more is more. Which is exactly what we're doing. Like why why make anything simple? So you brought up Liefeld and that kind of brings me to to a question. You've, you've talked about mirroring the sensibilities of the publishing and the animated environments of 92. And I'm wondering to what extent we can see this series following the creative environment those were coming out of. Will you be replaced two or three times over the course of the series by different writing teams? Um, are we going to see Scott leave midway to go found Image Comics? Is Jordan just sitting in his office alternating between doing lines of coke and crying himself to sleep? He does that anyway. You know, it occurs to me that might be a good time actually for us to segue into listener questions. We put out a fairly wide net for these and we got a lot of them on Tumblr. And I think the most common one, this came in from like four or five different people, was uh, whether you guys do the animated series voices while you're writing. Oh, absolutely. Because there's two of us. And so when we're writing this comic, we have to talk to each other. And there have been times when Chad has come over to my to my apartment and we're dialoguing the book because this is the first time we've ever done this, but we're doing it Marvel style. All the sort of digital trickery that you see in the Infinite Comics, that's all Scott Koblish, for us at least. He's the one kind of controlling the pacing of the book. We just give him a breakdown. We give him some dialogue for each scenes. We, you know, break it down into the scenes that we want to see. And he just destroys it. He kills it. He's amazing. And he does like incredible things like drawing, like cyber is in number three and cyber's arms just get bigger and bigger in every panel (laughs) until cyber is just not there anymore. So we'll do the plots and then we'll actually go in and dialogue it. So we're actually working on dialoguing number four and plotting number six right now. So when it came time to dialogue number one, Chad would come over or we would get in a Google document and we would just literally write conversations back and forth with like me writing Rogue and Chad writing Gambit or Chad writing Cyclops and me writing Wolverine. And then when he was here, we would definitely do the voices. I would really love to see what ended up on the cutting room floor from those. Did it ever just spiral off into really unexpected directions? Uh, not really. No. So yeah, surprisingly, but we do love to say that Professor X line a lot to each other. Magnus, Magnus. <laughs> <laughs> open your mind. Let me help you. 
So uh, along the lines of, yeah! uh, of <laughs> memorable yeah! X-Men lines, uh, we have another question, which is uh, Pow Wham Teaching asks, besides scorpions, what's something else you'd like to see Wolverine covered in? Uh, oh, that's a good oh, one. Because I do like good. it when he's covered in scorpions. Covered in scorpions. It's my favorite Wolverine <laughs> line easily. That's so great. Uh, I would like to see Wolverine. Uh, Water. Uh, cold. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one uh I, I oh you're, you're crossing animated series though that's evolution right i know i know chris and i had a long conversation about this for years i thought that was in uh the x-men the animated series but no it's an evolution um and it wasn't until i started going back through and watching the animated series again i was like man he's right it's true uh, i would like to see him covered in blankets all bundled up on a cold winter's day <laughs> like a little wolverine burrito yeah because his bones are metal you know he gets cold Hey, here's a preview of X-Men 92, uh, number three. I'd like to see him covered in Wolverines. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm excited. I was like, excited before. Now I'm more excited. Actual Wolverines or others of himself? You'll just have to wait and see. Man. I'm just imagining little literal Wolverines wearing like the uh, weird spiked headpiece and yellow with black stripes. <laughs> oh, man. If we could go back and change that scene. Oh, no. Yes. Director's cut. Speaking of, of parallels to the animated series, uh, Snowy Mountain Face asks, what I'd like to know is if the last issue of X-Men 92 will be weirdly written and have a different art style like the last season of the animated series. Will it feel out of place? And will Xavier leave for space for a really stupid reason? Uh, it will be weird. <laughs> it is, um, you know, the preview went up a couple days ago and a bunch of people were like, like, oh my God, the X-Men are attacked by Sentinels while playing laser tag at the mall. Because that is the most 90s thing we could think of. The end of this book is not that. I mean, but yeah. in a way it is. <laughs> in intriguing and mysterious, that. <laughs> to tangent off of that, like having watched through the animated series again a couple years back, Rachel and I did together. What happened with that last season? It's Nothing awful. okay. Will Wolverine's arm hair be appearing and disappearing depending on how tight the schedule <laughs> is for any given issue? <laughs> or will Storm have her hair back when they have to cut the budget for an episode? Uh, well, Scott it would be has for an been issue, pretty right? consistent with arm hair. I, I'm not uh, sure although, whether or not to be glad about that. Although I did just notice, uh, you'll have to bleep this part out. <laughs> Scott Cowlish is hilarious. He's awesome. And yeah, I've been loving the art on this book. It perfectly evokes that era. And the colors, actually, especially. Just those, like, super bright, not very subtle colors. That's that's exactly 92, yeah, right before I've, they discovered gradients. I am fairly sure, for reasons I also can't say here, that this book is going to be the source of our, I guess at this point, fourth X-Book page that we actually get an original of. Speaking of Scots, we have a question from Asimov Fangirl who asks, How difficult is it to write Cyclops considering his personality in the cartoon and the not-so-much-love Chris has for him? Uh, well, that's the thing. He's Chad's favorite. Yeah. So, he just lets me write him. That's the best part. So how how do you guys divide up the characters? Do you do it along favorite lines? Are there any that you've like fought over? There's a chapter that we just finished, which I guess would be digital chapter four that Chris specifically requested. Uh, like in the pitch, I think I had kind of come up with the outline for that chapter, but Chris loved it so much. He was like, you got to let me write that one. So he handled most of the chapter. You know, we don't really break it down like that, but if there's something specifically that comes up in the outlines that we really like, you know, I might request to write that part and he might request to write another part. But it's I mean, not like I write all the Cyclops and Chris writes all the Gambit. It's not like that. Yeah, but there's definitely like I said, hey, I want to do the dialogue in this Rogue and Gambit scene, uh, which is what we're getting ready to write now. And I think Chad called dibs on the uh, Cyclops and Gene scene in the same issue. 
So you will get to see our competing attitudes towards X-Men romance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Twin visions of love. Like I said, the funny thing is, I hate Cyclops. I hate him. Because <laughs> he's no fun. But my favorite Cyclops moments, you know, and this is the conversation I've had with Rachel, too. Yeah, I think we talked like, about this in episode three pretty extensively. Yeah. We love the exact same Cyclops moments. Like, we love it in the Proteus saga when he beats up all the X-Men. I love it in the Joss Whedon stuff when he puts on his Grant Morrison jacket and uh, shoots a gun. Shoots a gun. <laughs> like, even in the Morrison room where he's like, hey, if you don't stop, I'm going to break your leg. And like, two panels later, he breaks that guy's leg. Like, all those Cyclops panels are like, I love those those moments for Cyclops. It's just if you ask me what I thought about him, those aren't what I think of. What I think is cyberspace isn't cool jubilee. <laughs> I need to find those Pizza Hut comics again. Now I miss it's them even more than I did. Uncanny like X-Men? Pizza Hut X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could go back in time and call this book Pizza Hut X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to have even more uh, copyright intellectual property issues. Oh god, I feel like that would be a licensing mess, but a hilarious licensing mess. <laughs> a hilarious licensing mess. The Chris Sims and Chad Bauer story. You don't know the half of it. <laughs> I can only assume. So uh, we have another listener question from Across the Highway who asks... I haven't read much of the 90s X-Men. Are there any story arcs from that era that you would suggest as background reading for your series? All of it. Just all of the 90s, 10 years worth of stuff? Yeah, like all of it. I'd start in 91 and uh, <laughs> and, and quit uh, when Morrison comes on. No, don't quit when Morrison comes on. But no, I think that what epitomizes our stuff or what really kind of hits what we're doing. Uh, we've already talked about the Executioner song a lot. And I really think that's a really good place. Although it's a mess, like if you haven't read much of the 90s X-Men, then you're not going to know a lot about what's going on there because it's like the first crossover post Claremont. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? the, the first it's, one after It's like Mirai all Hunt. these guys trying to do essentially what a Claremont crossover would be. It's really, you know, if Extinction Agenda is the first place where all those books sort of intersect in a big, you know, multi-part story, and that's Claremont sort of driving that ship, I think, then the next one is the other X-something executioner song where where everybody's trying to figure out how claremont could do it how he how he did these books for so long not that he writes them all but you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. i would say go get that mutant genesis paperback because that's got x-men one through seven so you have mutant genesis where they go to space and fight magneto and then it has the omega red story that starts with uh gambit in cut off jorts slam dunking a basketball Oh, right. That's the uh, on Wolverine. The no powers game them. and they start Got using it. their powers. Yeah. Which we directly reference twice. Yeah. Uh, and then it's got the Rogue and Gambit date. It's got Omega Red. It's got Psylocke. Even today. And I am someone who went back and read, you know, the entire Claremont Burn, Cockrum, Cockrum Burn, Cockrum Run. <laughs> like, I love all that stuff. I love, you know, I have said before, my favorite issue of X-Men is the one where they take uh, Colossus to the bar and beat him up for breaking Kitty Pride's heart. I've read, you know, all the Morrison stuff, all the stuff that's going on now. Like, that's still what I think of if you say, like, hey, what are the X-Men? I'm like, oh, well, they play basketball in cut-off jean shorts, and then they go fight Omega Red, and Maverick is there. Remember that poster that's in the back of X-Men number one, where they're all having the pool party, the X-Men pool party? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Distinctly. And then Cyclops is sitting there with the volleyball spinning it on his finger. Like, even as a kid, I recognized, I was like, man, nobody wants to play with him. He's just sitting there <laughs> spinning that volleyball. And everybody else is like, man, it's a pool party, you weirdo. He's just become a master at spinning volleyballs because like, he just hey, everybody, he's hoping. Look, look vol- anybody, volleyball? But yeah, nobody wants to play volleyball with Cyclops, man. If you if you really want to get, like, into the, uh, if you can only get one, if all you have is a quarter, go get X-Men number one. Yeah. 
Because that'll give you that big uh, double page spread with Magneto where he is just surrounded by a halo of word balloons. And that gatefold cover is what we're basing our story on. <laughs> <laughs> that gatefold cover is the best X-Men moment of the 90s. It really is. All right, Wolverine so- wears cutoff jeans in the in that full party page too. You know, you know what's funny? Like that really is like if you're gonna get for for, for the the listener question, if you're gonna get anything from the '90s, X Men number one is the book to get because it's got them all in it. It's got every X Men in it, with the exception, I think, of the the, the New Mutants and X Force. Like they're not in it, but like, everybody. Yeah, well, that's true. She's, she's off in Excalibur, England, but, yeah. But that's a pretty inclusive book. Yeah, Banshee's in that book <laughs> with his NYPD shirt on. Poor. Uh, like, why, why does Banshee wear an NYPD shirt? Because he's like, a cop. Sh- Shouldn't it be a Scotland Yard shirt, though? I thought, like, I mean, I, no, I thought it was Interpol. Where does Banshee right. work? Maybe maybe there's some kind of like law enforcement t-shirt exchange. Oh, yeah, you maybe just trade so. him back and know. forth. Yeah, it's a thing. Maybe it's like where they were trying to hire him, so they gave him that bag. So he's got like an NYPD messenger bag <laughs> and like a, like a t-shirt and a baseball cap. There so, is a cable beach ball in that picture, by the I way. Know. I just want to point that out. I know. Look, I was going to say it, and I was like, it's time to stop talking about this. Where, where did they I'm, get I'm it? Would they, had to, would they have to have gotten it custom made somewhere? Or were cable beach balls actually like available for purchase in 1991 in Marvel 616? Listen, it, it in the, the grim darkness selling. of a thousand tomorrows. <laughs> Speaking of burning questions, actually, I have one final one that we talked about coming into this. That is something we have not yet seen resolved in the first issue. And I wonder if we'll have the chance to, given the immediate destruction of them all. Which is, will you be answering the age-old question that has been plaguing all of us since the early 90s? Does them all baby chili fries? Oh, we haven't gone to the food court yet. <laughs> we have not gone to the food court. There's still time. I mean, maybe, depending on what happens uh, in the rest of your series. I say make it happen. It doesn't have to be at the food court. There are other places where they can be procured. Your options are myriad. You can do this. Answer not in this Westchester. question. <laughs> in Westchester, if you want to purchase something, there is one place to go. <laughs> it seems like a simpler reality where everything is, you know, black and white or rather, you know, neon pink and neon green. So I think with that, we are about out of time. Thank you so much to Chris and Chad for coming on and talking to us about X-Men 92. Remember, the first issue of that is out digitally right now. It's going to be coming out um, digitally in, I guess, half length issues and then in double length in print starting in June. So where can people find you guys aside from, you know, with your minds in the pages of X-Men 92? You can open your mind. <laughs> People can find uh, links to everything that I do at uh, about.me slash Chris Sims, which is uh, C-H-R-I-S-S-I-M-S. That'll have links to Twitter, Tumblr, uh, the podcast that I do. There will be a link there to go on to Comixology and buy comics that I've written. So uh, that's a good place to go. The background of it is two pogs that I was sent, one of which just says Blazin 93, and it's got a picture of a dragon on it. And another one is uh, Get Dirty, and it's got a, a skateboard. So if you like what you see, you will like X-Men 92. <laughs> you expect me to follow that up with, uh, you can find me on Twitter, at Chad Bowers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chad, I have some tick pogs you can have if you, if you need oh, some. Oh, thank you. Thank you. you. I'll if, take them, yes. If you I don't do got pogs, I... you don't got nothing. <laughs> we, have, we have thanked the two of you for coming on. We also have some listeners to thank. This is an entirely listener-supported podcast, and that is it is made possible thanks to our awesome Patreon subscribers. Uh, some of those Patreon support levels come with thanks in your choice of a variety of ridiculous voices. So I'm going to turn this one over, I believe, to Sexy Gambit. Gambit thought he was a master thief, but Logan Bonner be the one who's stolen Gambit's heart. Gambit think he gonna cook you up some spicy Cajun gumbo over in Sexy Castle Dracula. If you know what Gambit mean. Nope. And uh, I'd like to turn it over from there to the angry Claremontian narrator. You thought you had a chance, Naomi Vega. But how could you, a mere mortal, hope to stand against the rising storm without being swept away?
chaff in the winds of a disintegrating world. So yes, thanks very much to those Patreon supporters. And Chris and Chad, thank you guys so much for coming on. This has been awesome. Thank you guys so much for having us. We've been waiting for the book to come out so we could talk about it in more detail. And I really appreciate you guys supporting the book and, uh, and me and Chad. Thank you guys for having us. This was fun. Thank you. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is as always recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. As Rachel said, our show is totally listener-supported, like by the people that we thanked earlier. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter like them, please check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, we'll be back in 1986 with the Uncanny X-Men and the lead-up to the Mutant Massacre. (laughs) 